Having a Gas With is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for advertising, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Jeremy Hagrid, a 23-year-old mix engineer from Paris who now owns and operates his own audio mixing business in London. Jeremy's made a living from mixing for a few years now, so this is essential listening for young mix engineers who want to know what it takes to set up in the music industry. Firstly, I do want to explore this whole area where you're saying, you know, you came over to the UK from Paris to get started as a mix engineer. You went to train at presumably a school that had a good reputation, but you got there and found that you weren't you weren't learning as much as you wanted to. And um, and you said you didn't really learn much in terms of actual technique. So what I'm guessing is, have you had to learn that on the job? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of things that I learned by yeah just experimenting and stuff before and while I was there as well and of course afterwards because I don't think I I don't think I or like I ever stopped learning because I always discover new things experiment and stuff but um yeah I think there they just started you know like telling you about theory and stuff which which is interesting like it's super interest, interesting but it, at the same time it well for a lot of things it really doesn't matter that much in except you want to be like acoustician or Things like this, you know, for more like all the math behind it. Super interesting. I loved it, but I never use it. And uh, so there's this. And there's also the whole, I want to say, psychology aspect uh, about like working with artists and dealing with people that pay you for what you do and stuff, which they're not teaching you in school. Uh, and that's the kind of things that you, I guess, only learn like on the job. And I think that's like, I mean, I learned it the... I don't want to say the hard way, but I learned it like by making mistakes and failing at doing a lot of things along the years. Um, and uh, and I think it's really important in the whole in the whole industry, like whatever creative job you're doing, I think it's quite important about like just everything, the way you the way you get people to hire you and the way you deal with people that already hired you in a way. You said you had to learn things on the job in terms of the psychological aspects of it. What do, what do you mean by that? What what did you learn out here that you didn't learn in school and that you can't learn in school? I got interested a lot in the whole business aspect of the thing, like not being like salesy or like sleazy or anything and getting sales, but just like in a way making people understand um, that you want to help them. So like just, you know, like the way you speak to people and the way you deal with people while you're working with them, um, just making sure that you add value to people and stuff and just communication, communicate that you that you're really here to help them, that you're not just here like after money, that obviously you need to make a living, but you're like primarily, I mean, you firstly do this to help people and you make money with, with this. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people, I mean, from, from, from my experiences, when I had bands back in, like back in France and I was myself hiring engineers. So from this point of view and also the point of view of a lot of people that I work with, um, I feel like it's what's missing a lot in the industry in, in any creative jobs. Um, people not just only being after money, and and I'm 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 not saying it's easy because um, obviously, especially in London and other big cities, it's quite hard to live here. You need to like make some money to well, you need to make a living, you need to survive and stuff. And I think it's really easy to fall in the trap of being after every project uh, that you can get and like racing. To the bottom, like like charging, undercharging yourself, 
um, just to get as many projects as you can, just to make a living and not be able to spend a lot of time on each project and stuff. And I, I was guilty of that myself when I started, like, because obviously I had to like survive here. So like, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that if everyone was doing that, I think the creative world would be a better world. It's, it's a very brave step you took because you are very young. Am I right in thinking you're 24? 23, yeah. You're 23 and you run your own business mixing records for artists, which is tremendous because uh, artists, musicians famously have no money. And so mm. <laughs> you entered it, you know, you, you came from Paris to London, both very expensive cities to live in, but you came to set up independently in one of the most expensive cities in the world, attempting to sell to a marketplace that famously doesn't have any money. And all the people with money already in the music industry already have their relationships built. So how have you done this? How have you managed to go from that to making a living? Well, I think the first step was, because um, obviously, well, I was... So I did six months in uni, then I did like, I think it was nine months in the internship. Well, where, where, was, where was the internship? Uh, it was uh, Nivo Sound Studio in, in West London. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was really cool. I mean, it was a bit long to be unpaid, to be honest. Um, but I did really cool stuff. Uh, I was working a bit with... Um, actually, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. I don't have the right to say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You were working with a known entity who has since done big things. Is that what you were going to say? No, no. I, 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 um, I was working with Waves plugins. I mean, I just, I don't even know like why it matters that I, because I, I signed an NDA. Like, it doesn't really matter. Um, but because uh, my name is on is on like none of anything that I've done for them, uh, and I didn't get any money for this either. Um, oh, right. So you're worried about saying that Waves, one of the most notorious producer of audio plugins in the industry, uh, <laughs> on, uh, didn't, didn't pay you for a number of months and also didn't credit no, you for I any mean, work. It's, 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 I mean, I, I knew that I wasn't going to get paid or anything. It's just that um, the, the internship that I was in, I was working with someone that was working for Waves. So I was doing some work for him. I mean, it was, it was, it was really cool, to be honest. So yeah, so I went from there. So not making any income from music, except a few projects that I was already doing then, uh, which were like really not a lot of things. Um, and I ended up, well, the, the quick story is that I, I ended up getting a side job, um, which was <laughs> crazy shit job, which was uh, handing out flyers in the street. I was doing that at the same time that I was intern, uh, interning in the studio. I think my studio hours were 11 to 6. And I was doing the flyering from 7 to 10 in the morning. Um, so I was waking up super early, just going there, then going to the studio. It was quite tough. And my only goal was to put some money aside so I could start doing the studio thing full-time. Um, so like literally putting money aside so I could leave off for six months without, if, if I didn't make anything, um, just so I could go like full-on doing this. Um, and I think that was a really cool thing to do because I allowed me not to worry about money that much for that time, but just focus on like doing cool things and doing things well. And, and another thing was that in that firing job, most of the people that I was working with were artists that failed to, uh, sadly failed to make a living out of their craft. And that kind of like struck me because I was, I know, I was like 18 uh, yeah, I was 18 back then, and 18, 19, and uh, I was working with like 35, 40, 45 years old guys and girls that um, 
yeah, just like whether musicians, actors, um, painters, any creative jobs, I just got stuck into getting a side job to survive and didn't have the time to dedicate, didn't have a lot of time to dedicate to their art and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, shit, like, I mean, that's, that's really sad, but I was like, shit, like, I, I, I don't want to be that guy, like, if, if you know what I mean. So that's kind of what, like, motivated me as well to go full on and stuff. I, I, I worked a lot. I worked probably more than I should have. I mean, not, not more than I should have, but I worked a lot because I did crazy hours for this time. But at the same time, it made me learn a lot about what I could do and what I, what I wanted to do. Um, and so when I started working at the studio and started with my own full-time afterwards, um, I just, I guess I just started by nurturing relationships that I had. So people that I already worked with and um, just trying to add more value to them and just work with the whole word of mouth referral kind of things. Cause in a way also that's the best kind of like way that you can get people to hire you as well. It's like having someone else that you helped and that's happy with what you're doing. Um, so I guess that's how it started. And and to, even to this day, that's the biggest way that people get to discover my work and, and, um, that I end up working with. So it's quite cool. <laughs> it's more human, I guess. So the big, the big risk and the big entrepreneurial leap you had to take was working a lot. It sounds like you were working about, you know, 12, 13 hour days when you were doing your flyering and you were interning and then, and then not having an income at all for a, a, a set time and, and say, and saying, that's it. If I don't make money during this time, then I'm out on my own. So you really had to had to do it. And so how did you get those first few jobs mixing? And how did you get your first clients? I think, well, I, I was already working with a few people from, well, from France, firstly, and also a few people that I had met here. Um, and before I started like going like full time. And after that, I just started you know, like, I guess like everyone's going to like networking events or just trying to find, um, my, like putting ideal customers online. So whatever it's, um, if it's like Facebook groups or websites or forums or God knows what, um, and just literally trying to find people that I felt like I could help, uh, with that sound. So just being like really friendly and conversation, uh, conversational, um, obviously I didn't, I wasn't the best at it when I started uh, at all. Um, but that's kind of like what I was saying. I just, um, every time that I didn't get a job that I wanted because I had done something wrong, I was just like, kind of like spending a lot of time analyzing what I was doing wrong and how I could not do that again. Um, obviously, I just, as well, I, that's not how I always acted. Like at first, I, when I didn't get something that I really wanted to get, like I just started to get crazy and be like, shit, like why, why on people I hire me, like, I can really help them and stuff, but, but yeah, that's not how it works. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, just going slowly, obviously like I, I, I made a bit of money in, in those six months, um, uh, that I had, um, that I had money saved on for not as much to make a living, but that allowed me to kind of like test my, my service in a way, um, like test the markets. I don't, I don't know how you, how you should say that, but see if people were interested in what I was doing. And also I progressed quite a lot. I mean, improved my, my actual skills and stuff, um, which I, again, like, I feel like I always gradually do. Um, 
in the same way as like adapting to the current trend and stuff. But yeah, I guess just like started making some new friends in the in the like the musician industry and yeah, just seeing how I could help people. Um, obviously, not charging a lot at first because uh, I had to build a proper portfolio, portfolio as well. I had some stuff, but maybe not not the best things ever uh, back then to like showcase uh, to people. So that that was like a thing, first step, and then just putting it out there, having bigger fees, and then yeah, just going from there, I guess. Yeah, and because I know that one, the way you got in touch with me, because obviously I am one of your clients as well, is that uh, you sent me an Instagram message, which is quite a millennial new business strategy. <laughs> so has, has that brought in a lot of business going on social media and just saying, I like your music, can I work with you? It had. So when I was starting, I used to do that quite a lot, actually, um, which is really time-consuming. There are tons of people that never reply to you. So some people, that, that, that's also, also what I was saying, like adapting my message, um, depending on how things were going, like the kind of feedback that I got from people. Um, so I got a lot of people just like, replying to me like in a mean way that I that I was interested like literally the first message I was sending and usually the first I, I, I don't remember exactly what I, what I told you when I when I reached out to you but usually overall every time that I reach out to someone is firstly it's someone that I want to work with not I, like I actually take the time to listen to what they do and secondly like I never go for full sale like that's, that's not what I want to be going after because I don't want to like work with anyone that I don't think that it would be a good fit to work with. So it's, I always want to go from like a conversational point of view and just like getting to the person that I'm, that I'm talking to and seeing what they do, where they want to go with their music, what, they, what their goals are, um, what, the, what, their vision, what, what their vision of the whole music thing is as well. And yeah, pretty much it. So I, I, mean, I used to do this a lot, which was, again, was really time consuming. I stopped doing that. I stopped doing that, I guess, like a few years back, maybe a year or two back. Um, and once in a while, I'll just like start doing that again when I see like a little drop in like my my projects because that happens. And But again, like being really conversational and um, just wanting to get to know people. Um, but yeah, I used to do that a lot. <laughs> so, you, so you wouldn't recommend to young engineers who are just coming out of school and want to... Uh, set up as independents like you, you wouldn't recommend to them that they send sort of copy and paste template emails to loads of people? I would recommend to reach out to a lot of people, but not copy paste um, <laughs> messages because it's quite obvious when you do so, to be honest. And yeah, just take the time. You know what? Even if one thing that I... Because obviously I was kind of sending the same kind of messages to everyone. Not like reinventing the wheel every time, but but even if you like, even if you type the same thing for everyone, just like type it, because that'll make it more personal in a way. Yes, yeah. it sounds crazy, but like even if you're taking the time to type in, not just copy pasting it is and like always include like I would always include like like the name of a song that they made that I that I listened to just to actually show them that I listened to it and talk about like one one um, element of it so that I actually that it proves in one message that I actually took the time to listen to what they they make. So whatever it is, if like the Productions recall all the whatever element or instrument they used uh, that you that you really liked or anything like this. But yeah, just to actually show that like you're you're not a bot that like just sends like the same message to everyone. Yeah, yeah. What was it uh, initially that made you 
want to become a mix engineer because obviously all the people who are interested in this will have an idea. Musicians mostly want to be musicians like myself and, and they see the mix as a, a, te- a, you know, a necessary technicality. But people outside music, uh, often they don't even know what a mix engineer is. They think you know, sure. the, produ- <laughs> the producer just makes all the tracks and then it's finished. Right. Like, yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, to be honest, that's funny enough, that's, uh, being a mix engineer is the first dream that I had of a job when I was a kid. Um, so when I was like 12, I think, it was the first thing that I wanted to do. Then, then I started thinking about other things because I was really into science as well back then. Um, but I went back on the whole mixing thing quickly. And so I started making music. I, I, I was making a lot of music back in France. Um, I was touring quite a lot and doing some like drumming sessions as well for other people. I think, yeah, I think playing music was like, like half my life or something back then. And then in high school, when I had like well, my bands and some like friends' bands um, recording shitty things in their garage, and I was like, shit, like if I can try to make that sound better, or I mean, it's still sounding like shit, but if I can try to make it sound better, like I might as well. And that's how I got into the whole trying to yeah, mix stuff, which I didn't really know what it was back then. And I didn't really know what I was doing either, but uh, <laughs> just like trying to like make something out of it. I was. Uh, I think I was doing stuff in like GarageBand back then on my on my she MacBook and then like then Logic, which I obviously cracked back then. <laughs> but um, and yeah, and then I just like yeah, just like quite enjoyed it and um, and just kept doing that. I guess I will, I'm going to um, try and explore the actual process a bit with you now because sure. obviously I've got some experience in mixing and your mixes cool. are uh, obviously a uh, a very high standard, you know. Um, so, uh, your work, well, your work's been uh, been referred to by my friend uh, HMD as uh, Radio One standard. So, like, it's it's re- ready for the mainstream market. And so, obviously, yes, you have That's this cool. uh, like leg- legendary French humility. But um, uh, <laughs> in t- in terms of each element, I'm going to go through elements that most people will listen and will know what I'm talking about. As opposed, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, what about the build up at 200 hertz on there, what, but. Let's take vocals, for example, because your vocals have a... I would say you're developing a, a signature sound because the vocals are very bright, they're very present, but you also have played a lot with reverbs to try and give vocals a, a, a very mm-hmm. three-dimensional sound. Um, so what, what did you find the most challenging thing about placing vocals in a mix? Because for me, the biggest challenge with vocals is always EQ because too much EQ in mm. any direction on any frequency will ruin the sound of a vocal, sound fake mm. and processed. What do you think? Uh, I think the hardest thing for, you know, I think the, the, the thing that I find the hardest is the actual volume of it because a lot of people that I work with have a lot of different expectations regarding vocals, obviously, and even more when it's for actual singers. <laughs> but um, yeah, like a lot of different expectations and and also a lot of people, um, and I mean that, like, rightfully so, they just don't really know what they want either. And um, so it's always a matter of communicating a lot. And and to be honest, that's not I haven't been doing that for that long. But just spending a lot of time to get to know the artist and just speak to them and know what actually discuss with them what they want. And the key is asking the right questions. I think. Literally, I mean, literally make people say, make, make, make the artists come up with the answers themselves. 
by asking the right questions. So, I mean, obviously, like, like obviously, well, compression is quite something that is essential, I think, and usually not misunderstood, but like done quite quickly in a way. Because I feel like a lot of people that mix mix stuff themselves, they don't really know. They know that they think and know that it, they need to compress, but they don't really know what they're doing. Yes, um, yes. So uh, a, a friend of mine. And he, and me back like three years ago when we just started mixing our own tracks said, you know, with uh, compression, all I do is I put the compressor on it and then I randomly mess with attack and release because I don't know what they do, you know. Yeah. And set a really yeah. low threshold. And, but to, to be honest, it's compression is w- way harder to hear than EQ or, well, effects and stuff. Um, it takes, I mean, it took me a few years, like when I started to actual, actually hear. Well, obviously, I was hearing the difference, but I was wasn't hear, hearing exactly what he was doing, and it's even harder hearing it when it's like you can't compare the football in, in in a record that's out. It's like it's way harder for people to hear the compression on something that's that's released than actually cue or things that have other things that have been done. But yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just the biggest thing is managing expectations and. Like really trying to know the vision of the artist you're working with, because you might not agree with them, but in the end of the day, that's their baby, and you need to make them happy with with their music. And if it's for example, if their vision is something that you completely disagree on, honestly, I'd rather. I mean, if it's really something that I really disagree with, I'd rather just not work with them or like engaging uh, engaging like a proper discussion with. I mean, in order to like not tell them that they're wrong, but explain why I think they're wrong and what I would potentially want to be doing instead. And and obviously they would have the right not to agree with me. And I again like I would probably probably wouldn't want to work with them. Not saying that they're right or wrong or that I'm right or wrong, but just that we have different visions and that's totally fine. That's on the on the relationship side of things. To to, to the untrained listener, if anyone's you know if anyone's hearing this who has no idea what the hell you know compression is for or what it does. Why did because you, you said it's essential for the vocal sound? Why is that? I don't think it's I don't think it's essential for anything. I think it's okay. I mean, it depends on it depends on the material you're you're, you're getting. That's that's what that's what I was, I was saying. That I think a lot of people that I that I talk to they think that compression is, is essential and that they always need one. Um, I mean, they all, always need some. Sorry, on on whatever element or instrument, especially on the vocals. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I rarely use it. I use it. Almost all all of the time, but it's yeah. Again, it's just a matter of like analyzing um, what you get and what needs to be done. I think I think especially in the music that's coming out, the mainstream music or or even like most of music that's coming out nowadays, um, is useful because it helps making things more even. And but again, you have to be careful because you don't want to destroy um, like dynamics and stuff. Obviously. Uh, what do you think of music like quite, so so stuff that's at the absolute front and center of the charts? Uh, you know, vocals like uh, Drake and stuff like that. It sounds like there is no dynamics. It has all been been crushed out of it. What do you think of that? I quite despise it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I I can't remember I can't remember the name of the artist, but I I think I told you about that actually a, a couple of months ago. But there was this track um, that came out. It went really big. I, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but like. Chart music, like proper chart music, and and I mean it's it was on the master, so like the master was crushed. 
Um, so it goes with like the whole loudness war and stuff, like wanting to be the loudest because loud, louder is better for for people. But literally, like every time that it was like bass or eight to eight, the vocals was like trembling and like like as if there was like a like a tremor on the vocals, for example. Yeah. And because because it was it was wasn't saturating, but it was. I mean, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like like saturating. It was sorry, it wasn't distorting, but it was like saturating and. Honestly, like it wasn't creative. It wasn't a creative thing because uh, it's, it's and so many things come out like this. And I'm sure that the guy that mastered it didn't want to did, didn't want it to end up being like this. But it's just now with the whole yeah, like loudness one stuff, which is, which is decreasing. Like it's with the whole streaming things, whether people think streaming is good or not. Like it's good at least for the fact that. You you don't need to master and mix that loud anymore, um, but it's, it's still a thing, especially in like mainstream music or like hip hop and stuff, which I don't do that much of. But yeah, just wanting to be the loudest to compete with people, and then you have to compromise on the qual- on the actual quality of the of the music. And to me, that's just ridiculous. And I mean, and I think a lot of people think that it's ridiculous as well. But but yeah, so to me, I I, I would do anything until I have to compromise on the actual quality. And to me, the more dynamic, the better, obviously. And, and to be honest now with the whole streaming things, you can be really dynamic and still have uh, loud enough sound uh, and results. So yeah, that's good. <laughs> you mentioned bass and 808 and kick before, because we were talking about a hip hop track. And that's another thing that uh, people struggle with in mixing is uh, balancing and satisfying the low end. So uh, how do you, what, what do you, there's no set process for it, but uh, is there anything you have found challenging or did find challenging when you just started working and that you've since mastered in terms of getting the, you know, the bass guitar or the bass synth and the kick to, to be present in the mix and audible? What do you normally do or what's, how does it normally go? To be honest, I think the, usually the main thing, I mean, I think it always almost comes down to production as well because a lot of people just like layer and that's usually where it comes from. So the way that I would go about it, firstly, if I think that it's too busy in the low end is have a discussion with the artist and see what they uh, would want to put forward the most. So what's the most important for them in those different elements in the low end and take out, take out or really diminish things that are not that important to them. I think that's the most important thing because I mean there are all kinds of producers and all of them are, are good but some of them are really simple and like just a few elements and it's as complicated to mix those tracks because you need to fill the whole space with those but there's this and there's other kind of people that layer so many stuff on top of each other and and I think it's just a matter of yeah like seeing what's the most important element and enhance that and then use the rest to fill the gaps Rather yeah. than trying to put everything like like in the in the foreground, that's one of the things I think is a challenge for inexperienced mix engineers or people mixing their own work in general. Uh, is is the gain stage when you are at that first stage of the mix and you're trying to set the uh, you know the the relative uh, volume of all the tracks. Uh, here's here's the process that I find myself going through uh, more often or used to used to 
go through unavoidably when I knew nothing about mixing is I would I would start with whatever you know I'd turn up the kick drum and then I'd set it at an arbitrary level and be like, okay now let's turn up the snare and then I'm listening to the snare not the kick drum so then I'm like trying to get that loud and then eventually uh, every element would be turned up a bit louder than the last one so you're in this loudness war in the mix and so uh, how do you go about it? I've known some people who say, well, I start with the loudest thing, so I put the vocal up first and then I build everything underneath it. Is that, what do you do? To be honest, I used to, I don't know, up until like a few years ago, like three years ago, I used to do the same, um, kind of like the same thing as, as, as you're saying, like making a like, rough balance of the whole mix before starting actually mi- mixing it. But mm-hmm. I stopped doing that completely now. I just... Um, I usually tend to go always the same um, order. Um, so typically do kick, uh, rest of the drums, percussions, bass, guitars, synth, vocals. And I actually mix them all. Uh, I mix one and then I go to the, to the next one. Um, and I always have one meter, uh, like metering plugin that I always have open just to see what I'm hitting. Um, and it just go along with that. And then, so I just like, and to me, it's like, as, as you go from projects to projects, you kind of see what's working, what's not. And so I always know that when I fumble, like just start mixing my drum, uh, my kick drum, um, I always know that I want it to be arriving at like that kind of like level. And then when I start mixing the rest of the drums around that level and then going, going on with it. And so I usually, do like a process where I go from like one to the other. Then when I bring the other one, I just go back to the next two uh, before and then just like always going back and going forth and back afterwards um, in a way. Uh, and then, yeah, adapting things uh, as I go, I guess. But at least that allow that allow, allows me to like always be consistent and have a rough level of the mix that's always, yeah, coherent and consistent. Just having one meter plugin always opens. Are there any mistakes that you hear in not? I don't want to say mistakes because I don't want to assume the competence of, of professional mix engineers. But are there any trends in mixing, let's say, that you uh, could do without that you're not so fond of? So, for example, often it's obviously a staple of hip hop that the kick drum is the loudest element. That's how it works. But there are obviously some mixes where the kick drum is just far too loud and it's I, I can't hear what the benefit of that is, and I don't want to. I really don't want to um, start, you know, smearing any great producers like you know Noah Shabib, aka Forty Drake's producer. Great reputation, but I listened to the mix on Nice for What, for example, and I'm not really sure what they were aiming at because it sounds like there's almost no bass. There's a kick drum that's like zero dB, and everything else is like minus twelve. I used to have a hard time with putting vocals that forward because well I, I used to play in bands that were like for example mostly instrumental and I always liked I always liked music I mean instruments as much as uh, vocals so I had a hard time I had a lot of revisions that were just like turn the, turn the vocals up for, for a long time because I just yeah I just had a hard time putting them that much in front as people wanted it to be but it's also really like genre dependent so so obviously for that I'm talking like pop, like like chart pop, uh, and thing and well and hip hop and stuff like this. But um, yeah, <laughs> that's one thing that yeah, and, and even now like sometimes I 
put vocals up at a point where clients are happy with it, but um, it's not that I'm not, it's just that I think it's too much. And I leave it like that because, because I mean, clients are not wrong. That's how things are being done now. Right. But I don't think that's how they should be done. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's not how I like it, you know. Um, you know what I mean? So that's one thing that I had a hard time with. Yeah, apart from that, I think it's really genre-dependent because um, I love genres where drums are way for, way too forward, but I think it's great. And at the same time, I love other genres like some indie rock or stuff like this where the drums are way in the back. Or like some genres of music where it's a bit like, I mean, some like new music coming out now, which uh, is, has a bit of a vibe of like going back in, in, in time and yeah, having the drums like uh, way back. Uh, and I, I like it as well. So it's, yeah, I think it's really genre dependent for the rest. Um, what's the destination? What's the dream for you? Where would you want to end up? Are there any artists who you would, who you, you would dream of being able to mix for? You know what? Two things. I, I can't remember the name of the track. I, I'm really bad with track names. <laughs> but um, that last um, Lana Del Rey uh, track that came out um, within the whole album, the last album she released. The, the, I don't know if you've seen the music video, but the one where she's like, like massive. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's really I'll cool check track. it out. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and as much as I don't like her that much, I don't know, I listened to that track and it had been a while where it had been a while since I was like, shit, I would have loved to mix that track. Like yeah. the production is so on point and the mix is so on point and it's just so good. So good. It, and so, I mean, I, I would love to work with her on those kind of tracks. Obviously, I think there's a long way to go. But, uh, and uh, secondly, I, I mean, career-wise and life-wise, I, like, I, honestly, I just want to keep doing what I do. And uh, I don't have, I really don't have any um, desire for like fame or anything, like not at all, to be honest. Uh, just want to keep doing what I do, uh, work with great people. And and yeah, if I have one dream, that'd be to, honestly, to ditch the whole studio and then just do what I do, but on the road. Um, so, I mean, not on the road, but like move going to going places. to studio to studio from studio to yeah. studio. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'd love to. I'd love to. One of my dreams would be to move from places to places every six months or so, and just like in a way, because I, I I love traveling and I'd love to. I'd love to travel more, but I'd love to also travel more intelligently. So like not and more like environment friendly as well in a way. Um, so like, not like take planes all the time and not rediscover anywhere that I go, but actually leave places that I want to go to. Yeah, uh, leaving sorry, leaving places that I want to go to and uh, and work from there. Uh, so that yeah, that'd be quite awesome. <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. So you like the idea of say, you know, we've got we've got you a residency at this studio in uh, New York because there are you know three sessions you've got to mix there. So you mm-hmm. stay there and then you fly over to all you know. Travel sure. some other way, but, if, but even even just because to be honest, like I I have some have quite some gear which I use, but I could could also live without. So, um, in a way, just me, my laptop, and some speakers could do the same job as I do now. In a way, um, so yeah, it'd be less impressive on the photos for people that I work with, but yeah, that'd be the same quality. So uh, you know, it's. 
it's as good. Um, so just, yeah, like just even working from my laptop in places where I don't have particularly like studio time uh, dedicated there. I mean, I, I could, I could, but um, yeah. Um, All right. So um, one more technical question would be sure. uh, for other mix engineers, what's your recommended gear? So, you know, what monitors do you prefer? Mm. What plugins do you prefer? And for what purpose? Hmm. Um, you use Pro Tools, don't you? I do, yeah, I do. I was a long time Logic user, and then I uh, switched to Pro Tools completely a few years back. Um, hmm, interesting. Um, to be honest, I mean, I, my favorite favorite EQ is the SSL E1 because um, that's the one that I. I mean, I spend a lot of time using it on like on the actual console and. I I really like how it sounds. I, I use it on everything, literally everything. But at the same time, I know that it's not for everyone. So I think the best gear, the best plugin for anyone is the one that they really know by heart and know how to use. And and because to be honest, I was for a while I was uh, by every plugin coming out guy. <laughs> Um, like I literally bought everything coming out, everything that looked cool or thought that could sound cool. And I ended up with tons of plugins that I'm not using. And um, and the thing is that if you keep buying plugins or gear, you're always like changing your workflow and always discovering how to work. And I don't think that's possibly good. I'm not saying like not to buy anything. Like I still buy a lot of things. I mean, not a lot of things. I still buy some things that I use. But um, yeah, it's just if you keep reinventing the wheel all the time, it's really distracting. At the same time, it's you can you can um, disappoint clients because you don't provide the same work. Maybe even better work sometimes, but if you don't provide the same work as people are used to get, they just think it's weird. Um, my favorite speakers, I mean, the one that I have now, it's uh, Focal Twin 6, which I really, really, really love. Um, and I'm super happy with them. Uh, I love the NS10 as well, which I tend not to use that much anymore, but I still love to check stuff on them. Um, and yeah, the, if I can say the best purchase I've made in the past years is an actual fader controller. So I can actually like, be hands-on writing all the automations and raising volumes because it feels way more like, human and, uh, and truthful to actually work on music rather than just always being on the computer. So, yeah. Do you think there are some things that are, that are, that are okay to have in the box? And, but, you know, volume, for example, and, and, and gain is much better to have on the faders. Mm. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's a matter of taste, but I... Quite like it because it's yeah, it makes you be like hands on and um, and I guess do better work as well because you like fill it with. I mean, it sounds really cheesy, but you fill it with your hands. And but again, like don't each have like a big one like I have. You can just, it's not that big, <laughs> but like just one fader um, is plain enough. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I found that very useful. I didn't have one for ages, and I really. Love having one now. Uh, yeah. uh, and then one more thing I'm interested in with you in particular sure. 
uh, is reverbs because you're very. I think you're very good with reverbs. Oh. And uh, I think it was your mixing that educated me to the fact that reverbs aren't there just to create an effect. In for the most part, mm. a reverb is there to create the impression of space. And once sure. um, I discovered that, I went back and listened to records that I'd listened to all of my life. And when mm. I had been hearing them, I had been assuming that they were recorded in a room or sure. or a large space. But you could, you. I always felt like I could picture where they were recorded. And then as soon as mm. I learned this, I realized that it's because reverbs were being used to create the impression that they were in that space. Sure. So um, again, are there any common mistakes in reverb, especially with less engine, uh, experienced engineers? Mm-hmm. And is there anything in particular that you've learned that's been invaluable that you use a lot now you, do, using reverbs? Um, one good tip that I think it was... I think it was Fab Dupont, like a mixing engineer in New York, a French guy that, that I mean, didn't tell me that personally, but like in one video that I checked or something like ages ago, um, that was a really good tip, I think, was to decrease, like, so like put a reverb on the one that you like, that you like to sound off and stuff. Obviously like, that's, that's a whole different talk, but, um, and decrease it until you can't hear it anymore. And then just raise it a tiny bit above. Um, cause I think I, obviously like, I love reverb. That's one of my favorite things, uh, when I mix. Um, but the fact that it was my, I mean, it is still my favorite thing is that I used it probably too much for a while. Or, or like too prominent in the mix because uh, I just really liked it. And I think, yeah, like as I was saying, um, first few years I was doing that main thing that I got in revisions was too reverby um, and just to decrease the reverbs and stuff. And I mean, to, be, to be fair, it's a, it's a rule that's true for everything, even for like levels and stuff to just, yeah, just decrease stuff until you can barely hear them and until you feel like it's still there, but at the same time, it's not prominent. So for reverb is more true than ever, I think. Put it in there so that you get the vibe of it, but you don't hear it in a way. Um, except obviously if it's uh, like if it's an effect that you want, or if it's like a like a throw of reverb and like a, another part of the track as a transition and stuff. Obviously, but you're describing using reverb there as a as a as a tool in mixing to create dimension in elements of the track to create sure. the impression of. Of, of, of some body to them, mm. but you can't hear any decay. You can't hear any dispersion, and you need very, very nuanced ears to detect that. I'd say I, I, I really struggle with that. We've come to the end of our hour, so uh, this has been good. I think we should do. Um, I think we should do another one, and next time, I think what would be good would be if we do a, a screen share with you, and and we can talk through one of your mixes, and we can watch what you're doing and, and things like that. So yeah, I'm down on. Great stuff. All right. Cheers, man. Cool. Thanks, man. If you enjoyed this podcast, or if you've got any questions or would like to be featured as a guest, do get in touch. I can be reached at greg at gasismusic.co.uk. That's Greg with one G, by the way. G-R-E-G. Thanks again for listening. 